Salwete friends and listeners of Curiosalus, it's good to be back. We are here with another episode in our series on ancient women, and we've got Cleopatra lined up today. I'm joined, as ever, by the Curiosalus man that is Will Randall. Salwete everyone, looking forward to this. Yeah, we've got some, some good pointless facts to Plenty. ramble on, but we might as well get started straight away with... The general introduction to Cleopatra. Now, she's one of those huge names that basically everyone's heard of, but I expect if I asked you to actually explain what she did, and even when she lived, you might struggle to explain that. She was born in 69 BC, so not actually as long ago as a lot of people think. I think there's a, a fact that sort of floats around. Are you going to bring internet. up the one with the pyramids? The, the pyramids, yeah. The time so she's gap. Closer That's to, a classic. Closer to the iPhone than the pyramids. So yeah, 69 BC is when she was born. Cleopatra, she was Cleopatra the Seventh, the Queen of Ptolemaic Egypt from 51 to 30 BC, its last active ruler. She was descended from Ptolemy the First, who was a Macedonian general and companion of Alexander. She ascended to the throne when she was 18, and she began her joint reign with her brother Ptolemy the Thirteenth. It is worth noting that, being a descendant of Ptolemy, she was not a native Egyptian herself. So, although most people obviously might view her as being a classic um, ancient Egyptian, wearing all the the usual attire, um, she was Macedonian, so she was uh, a Greek speaker. And, in fact, all her predecessors of her dynasty, not a single one of them had learnt to speak Egyptian, which is quite remarkable, really. But she was, yeah, she was the first to, to actually bother to learn um, Egyptian. Which, in a, over a span of about 250 years, <laughs> seems quite strange, doesn't it? It's actually quite incredible. It's like, I think the Russian Tsars spoke French at their court, but I'm sure they could even speak Russian to most of, sure most of the could. people. But even not being able to speak Egyptian is quite something. But it wasn't just Egyptian she learnt. We have reports that she could speak Ethiopian, Hebrew, Arabic, Syriac, Median, Parthian, and Latin. Just a few, then. But, yeah, so she's, she's a pretty multilingual girl, but Greek was her native uh, language, and um, it's the fact that she learned Egyptian that does stick out. People point out that it may be because she was a shrewd political operator and, you know, knew how to interact with a variety of people, and certainly in ancient Egypt, right under the Ptolemaic dynasty, especially in Alexandria, it was a pretty multicultural place. A bunch of people from different religions, ethnicities were all, were all living in this melting pot. One thing you may know about Alexandria is there was a famous library. One of the greatest losses. Yes. I mean, it's history. a very... A lot of ancient historians lament the burning of the library and what's been lost to us as a result. Um, I did a little bit of research into that because Cleopatra, it was presumed, would have studied there in the library. And, I mean, contrary to what a lot of people think, it didn't actually just go up in a burst of flames and we lost everything. Like, it was, there was a bit of a gradual decline. So it was her descent, well, ancestor, rather, Ptolemy I, who founded the dynasty, who came up with the plans for a large library. But it wasn't really finished as a building until his uh, son, Ptolemy II, came to power. It was during his reign and, you know, the, the few decades after that it became famous as a, an intellectual hub across the Mediterranean world. But um, its decline started 
I mean, reasonably quickly, probably about 100 years afterwards. And then it would tend to be a long, drawn-out affair. So the, the position of head librarian was quite important, but Ptolemy started to make it like a political appointment. So the prestige behind, you know, the academics required to hold that position fell away. And we saw lots of librarians leave in protest. But surely all the, all the books... Would yeah, have but I think in situ, would they? I think perhaps yeah, but they weren't as well kept, and you know, especially when you don't have electronic systems governing. Oh, I know where this book is. It requires a lot of knowledge to be able to know. Okay, this scroll is located in this wing of this massive library, in ancient times, mm. and I imagine it wasn't necessarily that the um, scrolls were burnt or anything like that, but you know they were forgotten about, and you know scrolls the nature of writing would things need to be rewritten because there's no printing press back in these days. So, yeah, I think it just fell into disrepair. But then this fire that did happen was in the time of, well, Caesar and Cleopatra, and that supposedly was responsible for a lot of destruction of text, but it wasn't the end of the library. We know the Emperor Claudius, who ruled in the first century AD, came up with some renovation plans. Um, so it showed it was still in use, but we didn't really hear about much of it since, uh, since then. And we do know that when our old mate Aurelian uh, defeated Zenobia, who we've talked about in a previous episode, he had the area of Alexandria where the library was located raised to rubble. So if the library had not ceased to operate by that time, that was definitely the, the final nail in the coffin. And from then on, it disappears from history, sadly. So, it is sad. Yes, but we hope. I, I imagine a lot of scrolls were transported to Rome or to, to other cities. But um, yeah, it's a shame that a place that very quickly became so important in the intellectual classical world just diminished slowly and died a very long mm. and drawn out death. I wonder if there is a statistic of if we know what percentage of texts have been lost. I don't know how you'd count be a- that. Especially as I'm sure there are lots of texts that we don't know about. Yeah, that's because I think um, we, you know, ancient writers will often reference texts that they've used that we will then not have. And we know they've been lost, but, you know, who knows what they've not referenced. Yeah. It's an impossible task, really. No doubt a lot's been lost to us. But, mm. um, I mean, we've got, we've got a pretty good volume of stuff, so we can't really complain too much. Yeah. So after Cleopatra was educated, presumably at the library, she got on with co-ruling Egypt with her brother Ptolemy the Thirteenth, who she probably married. Yeah, they had a weird habit. Part of a, a long-standing royal Egyptian custom, which I think was deeply frowned upon by the rest of the Greek world. Just like the Targaryens in Game of Thrones, for those who just like the Targaryens. But this was this was a long-standing practice in the Egyptian royal family since the time of Ptolemy the Second, so really early in the dynasty. However, despite the fact that they were married, relations between the two of them did not last very long, and there was a civil war. There was. Which caused all sorts of chaos. During that time, Pompey, uh, Pompey the Great, the Roman, uh, who'd been defeated at Pharsalus in 48, fled to Egypt, where he was killed on Ptolemy XIII's orders. Julius Caesar pursued him. He ended up in Egypt as well. He ended up occupying Alexandria which was then besieged. It is worth noting, however, that Caesar wasn't best pleased that Ptolemy Thirteenth, Cleopatra's brother, had Pompey executed. I mean, this might have just been a fake reaction, but he was pretty keen on showing himself to be a man of mercy 
who wasn't, you know, seeking out rivals like Pompey to execute them and rid him of rivals in a bloodthirsty way. It was probably politically convenient that Pompey was killed because it removed a rival and a figurehead for rebel support against Caesar. Nevertheless, he certainly played the part of showing frustration at Pompey's execution and that it wasn't, you know, somehow fitting for a, a Roman senator and former consul to be butchered in such a horrible way by Egyptians. Nevertheless, he, he pressed on and it was perhaps politically expedient. And he met our um, woman of the episode, Cleopatra, and, well, he took a certain liking to her, didn't he? He did. A very certain liking. Because even though Cleopatra was presumably married to her brother Ptolemy the Thirteenth, and then subsequently her younger brother Ptolemy the Fourteenth, during both of those periods, she had an affair with Julius Caesar, which produced a son, Caesarian. And, uh, yeah, I think they, uh, they got on rather well. They liked to uh, take some boating trips in certain parts of the world, most notably on the River Nile in a fairly large boat. And I understand that you have some uh, some interesting knowledge on the yes. nature of this cruise. Well, I did some reading. Basically, Caesar, I mean, he essentially just had a holiday in Egypt for a while. While he was um, having this affair, they did go exploring down the Nile. And he was a keen reader of geography. So we've uh, mentioned friend of the show, Pythias. He was a, a good old explorer. <laughs> Official friend of the show. Yeah, a friend of the show who explored um, Britain and Germany and whatnot. There was also a famous explorer who Caesar was an avid fan of called Eratosthenes of Cyrene, who um, wrote about North Africa because Cyrene is situated in modern-day Libya. So he knew a fair bit about the region. And I got reading about this bloke. And he's a pretty cool dude. Pretty smart, actually. Here we go. So he, he, like, he was, um, yeah, he was like, time frame we're talking, 276 was when he was born to 194 BC. He was chief librarian at the Library of Alexandria, so we've got a bit of what a crossover there. He was a bit of a polymath, so he was best known for being the first person to calculate the circumference of the Earth. How accurate was he? So, well, so what he, he did this by measuring like shadows, at, I think at different points in the Earth, yeah. and then working out the difference between them at times of day, and using measurements between these distances and the, the difference in angles... He estimated that the Earth was, well, it depends on, that basically ancient Greeks used this distance called stades, and it depends on how long you judge a stade. But he judged it to be 252,000 stades, which by our recommendations, if you take either either bound, is between 39,000 to 40.3 thousand kilometres. Okay. And do you want to guess how well, what the actual circumference is? I actually, I actually don't know. No, <laughs> yeah, yeah. No figure I was if I was mind. asked this, I'd have, I'd have absolutely no idea. But the actual circumference is 40,075 kilometres. So he was literally bang on, wow. perfect to a T. That's great. Um, yeah, so it's, it's like it, it literally, it, that range depends on whether you use the value of a state as either 155 metres or 160 metres. So, but the, the error range is between like negative 2% to plus 0.8%. So it's pretty remarkable. To measure the distance between these two points, he got these guys called Bematists, who were literally specialist walkers who would measure the distance <laughs> they walk, um, which is crazy. But yeah, they, I think they probably just literally count their steps between two cities in a straight line and work it out. So he used their, their walking essentially to calculate it. It's quite a way to make a living. 
yeah, you've got to be pretty fit too, walking in the sun in ancient Egypt. But there you go. Um, so yeah, he was a, he was a pretty smart guy. But um, a year or two before he died, he contracted ophthalmia and became blind. And I think because he was so depressed that he lost the ability to read, voluntarily starved himself to death. <laughs> Um, but he, he, you know, this was aged 82, according to our sources. So he, he had a pretty good, good run, especially in the ancient world. But, um, yeah, he was clearly a, a learned man who, who liked his books and pretty successful with some of his estimations too. But there you have it. Indeed. So he made quite an impression on Julius Caesar then, did he? Yeah, I think he, I think Caesar took some of his writings with him just as he was exploring the Nile, like David Attenborough style, you know, walking down and reading these, these books and looking at the animals along the river banks. But he was um, certainly made an influence on Caesar and helped him along on his exploration holiday, his little sabbatical year away from civil war while he was exploring Egypt. Yeah, lovely. It's also worth noting that um, Caesar was going down the Nile on a river barge. <laughs> <laughs> These are the sorts of uh, unnecessary tangents that, yeah. that define Curiosalus episodes. It wouldn't be a Curiosalus episode without an unnecessary tangent. I'm intrigued to see what you have to say about. Well, you said you, you did barges. some reading yourself on pleasure barges, so perhaps you. I, could start. I, had, I had come across this, so I think it's in Suetonius that Julius Caesar went down the Nile, supposedly in search of the source of the Nile, but I don't think he got that far. And this this was a barge which had been commissioned, I think, by Ptolemy the Fourth, so it's really yeah. old. But it's also abs- it's just astronomically Massive. big. Considering that, so this this pleasure barge, the Thalamagos, which means like room carrier, right? Yeah, yeah. So it's one hundred and fifteen meters long, which is huge. And the the small sort of rabbit holing that I did around this, the longest wooden ship ever built that we we can mm-hmm. securely document, is one hundred and forty meters, a U.S. ship, in yeah. the early twentieth century. So this is not far off that from best part of two millennia earlier mm-hmm. which is which is just astonishing really i don't know how wide the nile is yeah i, I mean it probably obviously varies it must have been in location a right pain to maneuver this thing yeah i mean if i was responsible for navigating this across riverbeds i'd be pretty nervous when you've got yeah. cleopatra and julius caesar just watching on top of the ship for you to make a mistake yeah i could quite easily see a, that container ship that got stuck oh, in the Oh, they ever, ever given or ever green or yeah. what was it called? Yeah. I think ever given. Yeah. They got wedged in the Suez. I can, yeah. I could quite easily see the Thalamagos doing the same thing on the Nile. The embarrassment you'd have as the driver, the Admiral. Yeah, exactly. Be awful. It would. What, what else do you have to add well, on <laughs> pleasure barges? I've got plenty to add, don't worry. <laughs> so I did some reading on other pleasure barges. Um... <laughs> There was also Caligula's giant ship, which you may have seen. Oh, yes. Which, it was excavated in the, I think it was the 1920s or 30s by Mussolini. Um, and it was, this was basically of a very similar size. You can see pictures of it being dug up, and it is absolutely massive. It's basically the same, more or less the same size. I and mean, we know it's six decks high. It could carry a crew of between seven to 800 people, which is basically the same as the Thalamus, which is, I mean, ridiculous. <laughs> but there were two particular boats that I really went down deep into this rabbit hole. So there was a boat called the Bucentaur, which was the state barge of the Doges of Venice, which is a, like, a, <laughs> like a pleasure barge that was ceremonial in nature. And every day, well, no, not every day, every year rather, on Ascension Day, from the founding of Venice, supposedly, 
until 1798. The Venetians would perform this ceremony called the Marriage of the Sea, where the Doge would head out to the sea and would stage this marriage ceremony, which was supposed to, you know, wed Venice as a city to the sea to show their maritime and naval dominance. It was initiated by, it was actually initiated in 1000 AD when they conquered Dalmatia by a bloke called Pietro II Orseolo. And in 1177, the Pope, Alexander III, gave his blessing to this ceremony by giving them a ring, which each year would be cast into the sea, which gave it a, an added nuptial element. It carried on for hundreds of years, really. The mayor of Venice, to the very present day, actually is, now redoes this. Um, I've, I've yet to see any picture of it myself. But presumably um, not on a, on a massive... No, I, I don't think so. Or... No, so scholars believe there were four barges. So the first one, the first big one that's actually noticeable was in 1311. And then the last one, which was the biggest of them all, was built in 1729 under Alvise III, Sebastiano Mossenigo. This was only 35 metres long. So there was this literally only a third of the Thalamagos, which we're talking about on the Nile. So... That puts it in perspective. It was propelled by 168 oarsmen, which is pretty impressive, but it was sadly destroyed in 1798 on the orders of Napoleon to symbolise his victory conquering oh, Venice. Napoleon? Yeah, I know. Didn't need to do that. That nasty old man. But um, yeah, they he ordered it to be burnt, and supposedly the ship burned for three whole days, and the French soldiers had to use 400 donkeys to carry away the gold that <laughs> they burned off it. So it was, it was a pretty ornate, elaborate boat. Wow. If not, if not by size, but certainly by makeup and uh, elemental form. In 2008, actually, the, there's a foundation called the Fondazione Bucentoro. They announced a £20 million, uh, euro rather, project to rebuild this, this last one. But it's not finished, and they've kind of given up. <laughs> but um, nice. but yeah, uh, you know that maybe one day, one day we'll we'll see it. A uh, nice one representation. Day. Can get the mayor of Venice out on it. Yeah, exactly. Just sweeping into the Adriatic. But yeah, so I mean that was the most famous barge I could see. But then there was another very big wooden type of wooden boat called a Belyana, which were they were very large ships used in Russia for timber rafting. So they were they were literally the same size as the Thalamagos, but these this was between like the seventeenth to the twentieth century. It was ridiculous. They basically they go down the Volga, they'd stop it by the coast, chop down a bunch of trees, throw the logs on for timber, and then go all the way down to cities like Astrakhan, and then they'd literally completely dismantle the ship and then use the timber that was made to build the ship along with the timber they've threw in it on the way down. for building projects and this carried literally until you know the days of the soviet union and you can look up pictures belianas and they are gigantic but they were basically like disposable um in nature which was remarkable given how big they were yeah but yeah the thalamagos isn't alone um in reaching these sizes but it was certainly unique in both both size and how ornate and you know elaborately designed it was these belianas were more just makeshift massive but not as ornately designed but yeah i'd I'd encourage everyone to go google images and search in belliana or flamagos and then see what it brings up um because it's quite mind-boggling i've also got a last offering on the large boat (laughs) go on (laughs) beat me So there's a uh, suggestions of a certainly less well-documented boat from the 3rd century AD, China. 
Right. They had these massive floating fortresses, huge tower ships that could get most of an army on. And most of how big is said army? I mean, these things were enormous. They were called Luhuan. I'm sure I'm mispronouncing that. Yeah. Uh, which literally means tower ships, but they were large enough to have a whole brace of trebuchets on board. Oh my god! And the largest one that I could come across, which belonged to a chap called Wang Jun in the third century, was supposedly over three hundred meters long. Three <laughs> hundred. That's almost three oh times the size god. of the Thalam- Thalamagos. As soon as there was any amount of wind, they'd just get blown around uncontrollably. <laughs> so, I don't think they're actually. That useful, certainly very impressive. No, um, I think that's a bit too big. Anyway, we've we've rather strayed from uh, Cleopatra. Yes. I don't even know where to come back to Cleopatra now. Well, Caesar he eventually had to stop his gap year and return to Rome. He did. He had to go and get assassinated. Yeah, but Cleopatra did go to Rome and supposedly stayed at a villa he owned with their their son. Uh, but yes, unfortunately, Caesar got a few daggers stuck into him. He did, which was regrettable yes. for him. Following that, the Liberators Civil War, which was waged between Julius Caesar's assassins and the Second Triumvirate. Whilst that was going on, Cleopatra sided with Mark Antony, one of the triumvirs. After meeting at Tarsus, they became quite close and had a bit of a rerun of the Roman nobility affair type thing. They had two children first, didn't they? They had three children. Yes, three, but was it their twins were first? Was it Alexander Helios and Cleopatra Selene? It was like the moon and the sun. Indeed, which is quite nice. Cute. So Antony's control as Triumvir, he takes the eastern portion of the empire. He's busy waging wars against Parthia and Armenia and all sorts, and he was relying on Cleopatra for support in that. But relations back home with the other Triumvirs deteriorated quite considerably, leading to the civil war with Octavian, who of course became the first emperor, Augustus. This all came to a head in the final battle at Actium in 31 BC, where the combined fleets of Cleopatra and Mark Antony were soundly routed by Marcus Agrippa and Augustus's troops in what must have been quite a cataclysmic clash of the ages. I mean, in, in none of the boats were as big as the Thalamagos. They certainly made up in number. No. I'm not sure the Thalamagos would have been that no. useful at Actium. Yeah, I think it would have been easily sunk, but... I mean, supposedly... Maybe Cleopatra, Wang Jun's one with yeah, uh, maybe that the trebuchets could have come in handy. But. Yeah. Cleopatra provided 200 ships to Antony's navy, I think, which is pretty she hefty. Did. But, um, alas, it was not enough. No. So she ran away. She and Antony fled to Egypt, and after a series of uh, smaller-scale battles, Antony realised the game was up and committed suicide. Not too long after that, Cleopatra did the same. Yeah, well, didn't she... She kind of held out a bit to see what Octavian would be like and how he would treat her. But then she realised he wasn't going to be, so... I think once it became clear that he'd made his intentions to parade her in the triumph back yeah, at Rome... she was having none of that. She, she didn't want any of that, which is... And she couldn't su- seduce him either in the same way she'd done with Caesar and Antony. No. Third, third time, time unlucky. Was not to be. Yeah. So she killed herself. And there is some speculation as to how she died the common popular understanding is that she was bitten by an asp some of the ancient sources offer differing accounts um cassius dies suggests she she injected poison with a needle strabo that she rubbed on poisonous ointment 
Plutarch suggested it could have been an asp, but, I quote, the truth of the matter, no one really knows. He then goes on to offer what is a spectacular way to die. <laughs> Which um, is what? He suggests that she killed herself with a cheese grater. <laughs> <laughs> could, you de- could you please explain the logistics behind that? <laughs> So when I first saw this, I thought that that can't be right. Well, so wait, wait, hold on. Um, Plutarch generally thought that this was how she did it. Plutarch suggests that it might have been an asp. We don't know, but it might have been a cheese grater. <laughs> I wonder what's more unlikely. So I'll explain the cheese grater. Okay, yeah, please do. I'm dying to know. So the, uh, the Greek word is a knestis, which is used very sparingly throughout Greek literature. The only notable other use of it I could find was in, in the Iliad. Of course it's in Homer, it's a classic. Yeah, every other word in the Iliad is just, <laughs> just appears vocab. once, it's a hapax and a gomena. <laughs> yeah, I think it is a hapax in Homer. And it's used when one of Nestor's captives, called Hecamede, is preparing some sort of broth made of wine, barley and grated goat's cheese. Nice. In a big cauldron. I'm not sure that sounds very appetising. No, but... Um, Anyway, Plutarch's suggestion is that Cleopatra <laughs> used the cheese grater. <laughs> but how? With, how? Uh, with... Did she grate her own neck off or something? What? <laughs> no, I think, I think the idea is that she uh, scored her skin using right. the, uh, the serrated edge to introduce a toxin into her bloodstream. Okay. Which is a slightly less dramatic image that I had in yeah. my mind when I initially read that she killed herself with a cheese grater. <laughs> So no, she didn't. Uh, she didn't file herself into oblivion with a cheese. No. <laughs> sort of face off. <laughs> I mean, what a way to go! That so, yeah, certainly a, not a very pretty course. You'd have to be really hating life to great yeah. <laughs> your face off with a cheese grater. <laughs> <sighs> anyway, so what? By whatever means she killed herself, she died in August thirty BC at the age of. 39, uh, to avoid being paraded in Octavian's triumph. She had, yeah, some, some children continued after her death. Caesarian, her son by Julius Caesar, did not last very long. No. He became Ptolemy the Fifteenth, and he ruled Egypt for all of 18 days. Wow, good run. Before he was beheaded by Octavian. Ruthless. So, he met a sticky end. Her children by Mark Antony were sent to Rome, and they were paraded in the triumph, supposedly under such heavy golden chains that they could hardly walk. And apparently even the Roman public felt really rather sympathetic. Yeah. But they, they were then entrusted to the guardianship of Octavia, Octavian's older sister and previous wife of Mark Antony. Antony, yeah. And she sort of brought them up as as good as her own, um, which seems a curious sort of yeah. setup. But bring up the the kids of the of the woman that your husband's cheated on you with. Not yeah. sure if she wanted that. But... And has been branded an enemy of Rome yes for the ages. Her daughter Cleopatra Cellini was married off to Juba the second of Numidia. Oh uh, yeah. And as a pair, they were installed by Octavian, well then Augustus, as the rulers of Mauritania, and their son. Ptolemy of Mauritania, uh, who was eventually actually executed by Caligula. He was the last known monarch of the Ptolemaic dynasty. Really? Ptolemy of Mauritania. Who would have thought that's where they They get there? around from Macedon to Egypt, Mauritania. Yeah. Well, of course, um, Zenobia also claimed 
yes. descent from Cleopatra, Zenobia, who ruled the brief Palmyrene Empire during the 3rd century. We've talked about Zenobia before on a previous episode, um, and obviously we don't know whether she is descended from Cleopatra. In fact, it's probably very unlikely, but she claimed it at least. So Cleopatra was certainly a figure of popular imagination in all history since her death. I mean, the historian Robert Syme asserts that she wasn't actually of that much importance to see well Caesar He's got kind of disparaging yeah I mean he calls her an I mean he references how uh, Virgil in the Aeneid calls her a Egyptian nefas conyung so a wicked Egyptian harlot spouse but uh, yeah he I mean he claims that she was wasn't actually very important and it's only really with Antony that she gets a uh, um, parade in the sun but still you know her power paled in comparison to to Roman senators and generals but, I mean, I think a lot of it is the romance between Cleopatra and Caesar and then Anthony that has captured the hearts of, of people since. Um, I mean, the, the poet Geoffrey Chaucer depicts Anthony and Cleopatra as a knight in shining armour and his, you know, woman of the court. Shakespeare obviously has a play, Anthony and Cleopatra, which I've not read as much as I want to. Um, it's certainly a popular one that's, that's well known. In the 20th century... I mean, she becomes even more well-known, I think. So I did some reading. There was the famous film called Cleopatra in 1963 where she was played by Elizabeth Taylor. I don't know if you've seen the clips of her entering Rome in that almost pyramid-like platform. I haven't. Wearing a gold dress. It's quite... I mean, it's very Hollywood, you know, 60s. I mean, it's, it's ridiculous, to be honest. So the budget was $44 million dollars which, when you adjust for inflation, today's money is worth over $400 million. So it's close to half a billion in cash was the budget. Yeah, it's insane. And presumably without any CGI. So, like, what are they spending all the money on? Yeah, it's literally just, it's literally just scale, sets, like, or... extras. Yeah, the scenes, the interior, the, the, the clothing, the, the everything. So wow. they, I think they filmed a scene for Actium, and they required, obviously, a lot of boats. And it was said that um, 20th Century Fox, who made the film, had the world's third largest navy at the time, which is just (laughs) insane. Although I'm sure in 1963, yeah, those boats weren't quite as effective as the Soviets or the Americans. No, maybe not. There was also a rather bizarre story about a group of female extras who were playing her servants. They went on strike to demand protection from Italian male extras who supposedly couldn't help themselves <laughs> by watching them, you know, in these scantily clad dresses. and Why do they have so many yeah, Italian extras? I, I don't know. I mean, this is clearly where the budget went. Yeah. But it's also, I mean, it's supposedly regarded as a, a big flop. I mean, it was the highest grossing movie of the year, but I think because the budget was just so It would have to gross an awful lot. Yeah, exactly. So. There's this weird stat where the film Cleopatra and then this film three years later called The Bible are the only two movies to be the highest grossing of their respective years and yet still run at a loss. And this was despite the fact for four whole months showings of this film were sold out across America and it still made a loss, which is just ridiculous. That's mad. Sounds like quite an epic, though. I think I need to yeah, watch I think it probably is worth watching, and also it's worth noting that um, Dame Elizabeth Taylor, who played Cleopatra, she was married at the time, and the man who played Antony, an actor called Richard Burton, was also married, but they both conducted an affair while filming. So it was just <laughs> classic Antony and Cleopatra. Oh, yeah. They they think they took their roles a bit too far. Um, I think they they later married, but Elizabeth Taylor she was married eight times in her life, which is remarkable. Uh, that's... <laughs> I mean, to seven men, albeit, so she got remarried to one of her former husbands, but... Even so. 
Yeah, seven husbands, eight times. Like... Many crazy facts from this film. There is, um, I don't know if you read an extract from Aurelius Victor, the 4th century Roman historian. No. Who alleged that she was so depraved that she often prostituted herself. And then he goes on to say, and I quote, She was so beautiful that many men bought a night with her in exchange for their death. What? Um, <laughs> which has got to be the most salacious, gossipy rumour ever. That's a hell of a way to go. Although, so I heard from many um, ancient, a- many ancient authors I thought said she wasn't actually that attractive and she was rather plain, but it's more the fact that she was, you know, pharaoh and whatnot. Yeah, I think I read that the only people that we actually know she had intimate relationships with were Caesar, Caesar and, and Antony. Yeah, I mean, um, she got married to her two brothers, though, but we don't know whether that was consummated or not. Hopefully not, for the sake of human generations, but... So it seems unlikely that she'd uh, prostitute herself out for the... Yeah, I think I'm, I'm going to take a guess life, but... and say that that was a fib by Rennie yeah. Spector, but you never know. What a rumour to start. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> there is um, one other film um, which is up and coming. Um, I, think, I don't know whether it's in production yet, but it's going to be a biopic on Cleopatra, and she's going to be played by Gal Gadot, the, you know, the actress who mm-hmm. plays Wonder Woman. It caused a bit of an uproar because she's Israeli and lots of people were complaining that um, she was taking away a role that could have been, you know, performed by a woman of, you know, Egyptian origin. But... But Cleopatra wasn't Egyptian. Of, she's Greek. So, yes, a- actually, Gal Gadot is pretty good casting. I saw a lot of... Yeah, I saw a lot of complaints on Twitter of people being shut down when they were taught a simple bit of history. Yet to be seen whether this film's going to be a flop or a, if it will fare a little bit better than its namesake from 1963. Mm-hmm. But um, it certainly doesn't have the same budget, so, you know, it's got a good shot. Something we can look forward to. I'll wrap us up with two unrelated facts about Cleopatra. Okay, go on then. The first is that her autograph survives. What? Where? We've got her autograph. Is it in hieroglyphs or is it in Greek? Uh, it's It's on a papyrus document in what I presume is Greek. So it's this uh, papyrus document from 33 BC, and it was later used to wrap a mummy. And it's a document that's granting tax exemptions to someone. And it was written out by some other official. But yeah, she had to sign it to make it legit. And it's signed Ginesthoi at the bottom, make it happen, or so be it. It's quite a good motto, actually. Make it happen, just do it. Ginesthoi, just do it. And yet it's in a clearly different hand to what the majority yeah, what of the documents are written in. So historians reckon that it's Cleopatra's, which I think is quite cool. That um, is cool, yeah. Uh, my other unrelated fact is that of all the many busts and statues of Cleopatra that exist, only one has got her nose. Really? Why is that? They're not, they're not like the, the Athenians running around smashing herms. <laughs> Not quite, We're going for noses this time instead. So the one on which her nose does survive, which is now in Berlin, right, is it's quite it's quite a big nose. Is it? Um, <laughs> are you saying so, it's too big? Well, I'm I'm saying that it's it's probably big enough to for it to not be surprising that most of them got knocked off in the two thousand years right. of right. intervening okay. history. That she has something of an aquiline nose, a rather prominent bridge. Mm-hmm. Akin to sort of Duke of Wellington type nose. Good old nosy. So I just thought that was interesting. So we got her 
autograph, but not many noses. Just just the one nose. I think on the whole, yeah. I mean, given it's a real autograph, it's a worthy trade-off. Yeah. So there we go. Another bunch of random, somewhat related facts. Uh, mostly to do with Cleopatra. Rambles and tangents as ever that I hope you've enjoyed. We will have more on women in antiquity and what some of them got up to in the next episode. But until then, Walete. Walete. Well,